see everybody here this morning, so thank you for joining us as we worship the Lord this Lord's Day. And uh, if you're at home, you couldn't make it today, thank you for joining us as well. We just pray that uh, it'll be a time for a few minutes to be encouraged in the Lord. So, so good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, today we're going back into Romans, and we're going to be back in uh, Romans at chapter 13. You see it up on the screen there, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. So please go ahead and open up your Bibles with me, and we're going to go ahead and read that out loud together as we go ahead and get, to get this passage sort of in our, in, our, in our minds as we ponder the truth that uh, God has for us in it. And I think Leslie's prayer was such a great way to kind of introduce that to us, to, um, to, to point us to Jesus, to remind us that we are here to learn to live the way he's called us to live and to carry his name forth out of the world so that we would represent him well and, uh, and not reflect poorly on who he is, right? So <clears throat> with that, let's go ahead and take a look at Romans 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for you. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you are also to pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about this and we, we ponder its implications for our lives right now, I know it's probably easy to look at a passage like this and uh, see the natural application for our lives, but not necessarily see uh, the gospel encouragement on how we, how we go about and live our lives, right? So let's stick together through this for a little bit, and I think we're going to see some beautiful truths that not just tell us how to practically live our lives, but also um, spiritually how we should be looking at how we view the world, right? And with that, I want you to just imagine a scenario, how that would play out practically for us, right? Picture this. Picture this. It's going to be, going to be a, a, maybe a little bit difficult first picture, but you're at home and you see on the news a story about some new sickness in a country that's far away, right? And uh, it's, a, it's one case and a few cases, and it's starting to spread, but it's still somewhere far, far away, right? And, you know, there's a little bit more panic and fear starting to spread, and all of a sudden, a case pops up in America, and somebody in America has it, right? And we don't know what it is. We try to quarantine. We try to sit there and uh, um, control the spread, but it's, it's spreading. We don't know much about this illness, right? Is everybody picturing this scenario with me right now? And day by day, this mysterious illness keeps spreading, and people aren't sure kind of what to do or how to handle it. And then the next thing you know, air travel to countries is being stopped. Sports leagues are putting their seasons on hold. 
and businesses are being told they need to close their doors. And the government comes out telling everybody that they need to stay home for two weeks to slow the spread of this new mysterious sickness. And then for months and months, the government tells churches not to meet, not to come together, not to worship. Can you picture this scenario in your mind? I know it seems awfully far-fetched, right? Maybe five or six years ago it might have felt far-fetched, but having just lived through it, I think that we... Uh, it, it takes Romans 13 and it makes it very relevant to us as we sit there and we, uh, we work through the text and what God has for us this morning, right? Because we have to sit there and ask ourselves as Christians... What do we do in this case? What do we do in this scenario when the government tells us we can't do something that we know God's Word says we should be doing? Right? And as we dive back into this letter to the Roman church today, we're dealing with instruction from the Apostle Paul on how government should function and how we should live our lives as believers under governing authorities. And needless to say, this passage does bring plenty of controversy with it, right? But I think as we dig into this passage today, I want us to remember, as we look at it, that this is not just seven verses of random instruction, but this is a passage that exists in a context of everything we've been going through to this point too, right? This passage can be taught like that. There's good truths to mine from this to understand how we're to live our lives under our governing authorities. But right now, we've been in Romans for a while, and there are recurring themes we've seen throughout this letter that are still extremely relevant to our passage today, and I want to make sure that we don't miss. So don't forget, as we're digging through this, that core theme of Romans that we've repeated over and over again since we began this journey, that Romans, like it says in the the subheading there of this slide, right? It's Christ to all the nations. It's what Pastor Mike Cain said is, uh, this letter to the Romans is the one true God's one true way for all the world to be right with Him. We've seen in Romans how God's salvation works in it and uh, how He works it out through the first 11 chapters, right? And one of the beautiful truths of the gospel message is that it isn't bound to or contained to only ethnic Israel, but it is intended by Yahweh to go to all the nations. And after working through that, we turn the corner into Romans 12, and we've been challenged by God's Word since we've been there on conforming our lives not to this world, but conforming our lives to Christ. And doing what Romans 12:1 says, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him. We've seen throughout Romans 12 what a transformed life by Jesus looks like as we live out our days serving our King, yet still being in this world. And as we walk through this passage, I, I think we find the kind of main idea right there for us in verse 1. Verse 1, it says, There is no authority except from God. God is the sovereign king over all of his creation, and he set forth order to his creation, which includes order for societies. It includes order for how they are supposed to work. And remembering this, remembering this is true, that God is the one true king, he is the one true authority that all other authorities exist under, will help us as we ponder the questions of why it is we are called as Christians to be subject to authority, and what it looks like to live that out. And we're called to live that out, not in some kind of perfect world, 
where governments and authorities are doing everything right, and they're doing exactly what God has called them to do according to what this passage lays out for them? No, but this leads us to have to wrestle with the more difficult question of how do we live in subjection to authorities that violate the terms of the authority Yahweh has delegated to them? Like I said, this passage is not without controversy. And we see that right in the beginning of the passage in verse 1 and 2. Let's read that again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. We said it just a minute ago, there is no authority except uh, that which God has established. And this statement Paul makes, it lays a foundation for what we see the role of governing authorities are and what it is they're supposed to be doing. These governing authorities operate for a specific purpose and a specific reason, and they operate underneath the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This authority of Jesus who rules over all things is found throughout the Scripture. I think we see an example of this in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when Daniel records his vision of the Son of Man. And he says this, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all nations, or peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This everlasting dominion given to the Son of Man sees him ruling over all peoples, all nations, all languages. Paul says he wants his readers to have eyes that see this very thing of Jesus in Ephesians 1. In verses 20 and 21, Paul says, He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. When men and women fill offices of power, offices that allow them to exercise governing authority, it's far too easy as a result of our human nature to think of ourselves more highly than we ought and to claim the authority granted to this position as just unique to yourself, that you can act unilaterally with no one overlooking you. We've seen it throughout history with kings and emperors who have elevated themselves to godhood so that they're no longer just heads of state, but they themselves are the sole authority to which all others answer. We see that in the Scripture with examples like Pharaoh in Exodus, with Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel, and Caesar in the New Testament. And we can look around today and we see the pride that exists in the human hearts hasn't changed. We look at politicians who are out asking for votes, who are running for office, and they come to us asking to be put in places of authority because they're the only ones that can fix our problems. But ultimately, this authority comes from God because He is the one who sits in authority 
over every other authority. God operates like this because, as 1 Corinthians 14 describes, God is not a God of confusion and disorder. God is a God of peace and of order. He's not a God of chaos. Because of this, He's instituted lesser authorities. So that humanity would not be living in chaos. Humanity would not be living according to what is right in our own eyes. Can we imagine what life would be like without this God-ordained order? Think about a really simple example for just a minute. Think about something like traffic lights. Can you imagine a world without traffic lights? I mean, I know we all get really upset when we have to stop at a red light, right? We're late, we're rushing through, we're coming up, the light turns yellow, and it's like, no! I need to go! Right? And it'd be tempting to sit there and think, like, boy, if that traffic light just wasn't there, and I didn't have to stop or slow down, my life would be a whole lot better right now, right? But what if we didn't have that structure in place to govern the hearts of sinful men that says, I'm the most important, I need to go, everybody else stop and wait for me? I mentioned that verse in Judges 21, when it says there was a time in Israel where there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Just imagine what the roads would look like if everyone on them were doing what was right in their own sight. We wouldn't be able to drive. Cars would be crashing into each other. People would be injured and dead with far more frequency than they are now. It would be a complete and utter nightmare. And when man is left unrestrained without God's order and without God's authority ruling over our lives, we are left with a chaotic mess that leads to evil being done and ultimately to death. Since we've turned the corner of Romans into chapter 12, we've seen the life of a Christian is a life of submission. We see that play out in simple ways like submitting to traffic lights, right? But at the beginning of chapter 12, we see it as a call to be conformed not to this world, but a call to be conformed to Christ. And this is us leaving behind our old lives to follow and to be like Jesus because Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and take up our cross, this is an act of submission to Jesus as our King. And as we continued in uh, chapter 12, we saw what it looks like to submit to one another when we use our gifts to build each other up as uh, one part or as a one part of a many parts of one body. Right? This is an act of submission. This is not the hand telling the foot, "I can do the job better. I don't need you, foot. We're going to do away with you." And we saw what that looked like in chapter 12 too as we interact with one another and we respond to people who do evil to us. We're submitting ourselves to the Lord in all those situations and we're not seeking to repay evil with evil. Now we see this life here in chapter 13 played out as we live in the world under governing authorities who exist to ensure the common good of people by ensuring evil does not go unpunished. This is the reason why we're told in verse 2 that whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And this isn't because just whatever a ruler does, God is just pleased with. No, there are plenty of governing authorities who do plenty of things that are not looked on approvingly by God. No, this submission is good, and God calls us not to resist it because He's appointed these authorities to be a terror to bad conduct. 
That's the reason. That's the purpose for us. We want to see governing authorities do what is right and ensure bad conduct is dealt with. When we're living a life conformed to Christ, we should be some of the best citizens that there are because we're not looking to steal, right? We're not looking to lie and cheat and defraud our neighbors. We're not looking to sit there and cause problems and to create a situation where someone would have to have some sort of restitution from us. We're seeking to do what Romans 12, 17 says to do. That is to, to do what is honorable in every situation with everybody coming across. Do what is honorable in the sight of all. See, when we live this way, we're, we're naturally going to stay off the radar of the authorities who've been in task with ensuring evil is kept restrained. Think about it this way. Does anybody remember the class clown in school? Maybe you were the class clown, so you might not want to admit that right now. What kind of attention did the class clown get in class? Bad. Acting out, causing disturbances. The teacher's constantly around their desk. Now think about the student who walked into class, got their books out, got their work out, and took their studies seriously. They walked in, they put their head down, focused on getting their work done. What kind of attention did they get? They came in, they did what was right, and the teacher was able to do what the teacher was supposed to do, right? The class clown, in that case, probably had a whole lot different outlook on the teacher, too, right? Than the kid who came in and took their studies seriously. And I think this is exactly what this passage of Romans is getting at in verses 3 through 5. Let's look back at those and read them again. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. As disciples of Jesus, we are not called to be revolutionaries. Our call to follow Christ does not include a call to arms. And our lives should be lived in such a way that people who are responsible to bear the sword shouldn't have to worry about us doing something that would cause them to have to enact justice of the sword on us. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospels of John and Matthew. And Peter tries to take his sword up to fight for Jesus. He wasn't going to let Jesus be arrested that easily. He had his sword. He was ready to use it. He was ready to go to battle to pr protect Jesus in that moment. But this wasn't what Christ had called his disciples to do. And if we look at the lives of the disciples over the next few days, this was dismaying to them. This was something that they didn't like, they didn't understand, they didn't know. After Jesus is arrested, they scatter and they run. Peter stands in front of uh, people and denies Jesus three times. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They don't understand what's happening here. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's supposed to come to usher in the kingdom by leading Israel out from under the rule of Rome. See, but Jesus, unlike the 
other first century men who claimed to be messiahs, who tried to lead uh, rebellions against Rome and lead Israel to its independence. Now Jesus, he gave himself up willingly. He was accused, he was tried, he was put to death. Because the kingdom that Jesus was ushering in was not of this world. Jesus didn't need to overthrow Rome because he was about to conquer them in ways they never could have imagined. This is why Jesus, when he stands before Pontius Pilate in John 18, says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Christians are to be conformed to Christ, and as such, we should live in such a way that God's servant, that is the governing authorities, will not look to bear the sword toward us. Because we want to live in this world the way Paul describes back in Romans 12, when he says in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. And when he says in verse 17, where he says to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And we live peaceably with all as far as it depends on us. And we never avenge ourselves. In chapter 12, it tells us to leave the wrath of God, or leave wrath to God, for vengeance is His. And now in chapter 13, we see God has set up authorities to act on His behalf. God uses these authorities as His servant, as an avenger. That's not our place. It's not our role. He's put those um, authorities in place. We're in subjection to governing authorities because they are placed in the position there by the Lord. And we live in subjection to them because God has called us to and because doing so means our conscience remains clear because we're living out the transformed life of a Christian that we just saw again from the end of chapter 12. Remember those things, living in harmony with one another, doing what is honorable, not avenging ourselves. That's how we strive to live our lives as Christians. We want to see this because ultimately we want to see hearts and minds changed by the power of the gospel. None of what we've just said, none of what I've just talked about happens because any one of us just kind of will it and say, you know what, I'm going to pull my bootstraps up today and I'm just going to get right with God and do it His way today. No, none of this happens unless it is the Holy Spirit working in us. None of this happens unless we confess, Lord, we have fallen so far short of Your glory. Lord, we desperately need Your forgiveness and Your grace. None of this happens unless we repent of our sin and we turn to Jesus to change the way we see the world and ultimately change the way we interact when we're in the world. And there's one final piece of the puzzle here in chapter 13 that I think demonstrates this in a very tangible and probably uncomfortable way. Look back at verse 6 with me. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. 
honor to whom honor is owed. Anyone here enjoy paying their taxes? And Paul's describing here these authorities as ministers of God in verse 6. And as such, you pay your taxes accordingly. So when Paul wrote this letter to Rome, Rome exact, was not exactly what you'd call a Christian nation. That didn't get lost on Paul that the government of Rome was taking their tax money and using it for ungodly things. But yet, under this government, which was persecuting the church, Paul still describes them as ministers of God and calls us to show honor to whom it is owed. And this teaching isn't exactly original to Paul. I think in many ways it echoes Jesus' words in Mark 12 when Jesus was put to the test on whether or not people should pay taxes to Caesar. And upon being showed the Roman coin, a denarius, Jesus asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Romans 13, right now, Paul's given us instructions along these same lines. God has given authorities responsible to ensure order and virtue in a society by putting them in place as governing authorities to ensure that evil is punished by the sword. And in this way, in this way, they are to be ministers of God as they work to ensure justice is done and people are able to live in peace. In the Old Testament, the Levites were a tribe of Israel who were given a responsibility to oversee and to lead the worship of Yahweh in the temple. In Numbers 18.21, it says, "...to the Levites I have given every tithe in Israel for an inheritance." in return for their service that they do, their service in the tent of meeting. The Levites, they were there acting as ministers of worship, and God directed Israel to give, to keep them actively working in their ministry to the Lord. I think we have in similar fashion here in Romans, Paul tells us the governing authorities have been put in place by the Lord to work as ministers of good civil order and of peace. And as such, it is good for us to pay our taxes. And our responsibility as disciples of Jesus is to be obedient to Him. And one aspect of that obedience is to ensure our accounts on this earth are not neglected. I think this is what we get here in verses 6 and 7. We should not be holding back when we owe someone something because we think we shouldn't have to or because we think the person we owe something to doesn't deserve it. And this idea, I think, challenges our flesh because it means if we desire to conform our lives to Christ, we aren't holding on to the things of this world in self-righteousness. But we're ensuring that our accounts in this world are clear, that we're clinging very lightly to the things of this world, and that there is nothing that can be held against us as we represent Jesus to a lost and dying people. And that means if we've taken out student loans or a credit card, we need to pay them back. And that means if we live and work in a country where taxes are due, we pay them. And if those governing authorities are requiring, if what those governing authorities is requiring of us is unjust, or if they go against 
the directions in which God has called them to act and to, uh, to oversee their authority, we need to address it in the proper way. We don't address it by just refusing to pay. This also means, verse 7, like it says, that we show respect and honor to whom it's owed. This only makes sense for us as Christians on a personal level because I know every one of us in this room affirm that people are made in the image of God. And if our hearts and our lives are conformed to Christ, we should want to see those governing authorities saved from their sin not take pleasure in the fact they are lost and dying. So that means if Trump is president you don't like him, you still need to show respect for his office. And that means if Biden is president you don't like him, you still need to show respect for him in his office. And we need to pray for those in high positions like 1 Timothy 2 tells us to, because people, these people act as ministers of God in these offices. And when we see them turn from faithlessness and we see them exercise their authority in God-honoring ways, they work to ensure what 1 Timothy 2 calls them to do. And 1 Timothy 2 calls them to act in this way so that the people under their authority get to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So as much as my flesh probably doesn't want to have to tell you this, it is good in the sight of God to pay our taxes. From this, I think we're led to one of the most challenging aspects of Romans 13. As we think of the instruction Paul's given us in these seven verses, one question that always arises for us is what are we to do when these governing authorities we are supposed to live in subjection to are ruling in ways that go against what God has said is good? What do we do? How do we live? How do we respond We see this in Acts, in chapter 4 and 5, where Peter are preaching the gospel in the temple, and they're healing people, and the authorities in the temple respond by arresting them. And these are legitimate authorities who have arrested them and have told them not to preach and have beaten them to try to to convince them to stop doing what they're doing. And what was their response? Acts 5, verse 29 But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. As we think about this reality and we try to understand how we live in subjection to authorities and how that it is a good God-given thing, yet now we have to understand at the same time there may come a time where we have to look at those authorities and we have to say we must obey God over you. I think the only conclusion we can make then is that living in subjection to governing authorities is not the same thing as living in blind obedience to them. Romans 13, it tells us how we should live under authority, but it also tells these governing authorities how they are to act before God as well. They are to be a terror to bad conduct. They are to encourage what is good in the sight of God. They are to bear the sword against wrongdoing. There is a tremendous amount of responsibility placed onto governing authorities. And with that responsibility, there are terrifying consequences for their soul when they flip um, these things upside down and they begin to encourage what is evil and punish what is good. 
And we've seen it time after time. We've seen governing authorities fail to do what is right before God in their high positions. We shouldn't expect that we won't see this. Paul did not pin these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in perfect circumstances with governing authorities that were fully obedient to God's Word. The people that were in these roles then and the people that were in these roles now are sinners who need the gospel. And without that, they will more often than not find themselves working their offices in a manner that goes against what God has said is good. I think we see this in our day right now as there are governing authorities all across the country who have been active participants, who have been complicit in and even actively campaigning for the murder of unborn children. While we're still in subjection to those authorities because it is right in God's eyes, we are not and we must not be blindly obedient or passive of such a thing so heinous. We have to see from this passage that the way to deal with such a thing, though, is not to lead our own individual revolution or to take violent action as a vigilante, as our response. No, conforming to Christ means that we are called to live like Him, and He has given us in His Word, including this passage here, clear instruction on how to act as a member of civil society in subjection to rulers, even evil rulers. So how do we respond? How do we, how do we kind of make these things uh, work together? I think we see a picture of this, actually, in the life of Paul in Acts 25. Go ahead and flip there with me, and let's read Acts 25 and verse 10 for just a minute. And let's see this example from the life of Paul and dig into this for just a minute. Hopefully help us paint a clearer picture of what it looks like to be a Christian underneath uh, rulers who may not be working for God's good. Acts 25 here, Paul has spent two years in prison and he's brought out before the new governor Festus. And this governor brought him out to hear his case, to hear Paul plead. And it was his idea that he was going to be sending Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried by the Jews there, which would have led to Paul's death. So let's look at verse, uh, or chapter 25, verse 10. Paul says this, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. As a citizen of Rome, Paul knew what his rights were, and he knew how he needed to redress the government. See, Paul spent two years in prison before this. In that time, he didn't write to Timothy. He didn't say, hey, Timothy, gather Titus, gather Priscilla and Aquila, get everybody together. You've got to come bust me out of here. This thing ain't working. Jesus put me on this mission, and I'm sitting here in prison. What's the problem? you got to get me out. we got to get back on the mission. Paul didn't do that. He didn't ask his friends to come bust him out. But at the same time, too, Paul did not blindly follow what this new governor, Festus, was about to tell him was going to happen. 
He looked at the governor and he told him, I appeal to Caesar. He redressed the government in the way in which it was proper to do. Throughout this ordeal, Paul remained in subjection to the authorities that were holding him captive. And at the same time, he addressed the wrong that was being done by the governing authorities by making this appeal to Caesar, as was his right as a citizen of Rome. And I think we see in Paul's example in this tiny or these few verses here how we can carry ourselves before an unbelieving world when we have to address the wrongs of governing authorities. We can live in subjection, which means we're not striving for revolution. We're not striving for lawlessness. We're not sitting around complaining about all the things we can't stand. But instead, what are we doing? We're praying for them. We're praying for the gospel to transform hearts so that they would be convicted by the Holy Spirit to fulfill their duties according to God's commands. And we do this at the same time, being ready to respectfully make our petition known and engaging in the civil process of government that in America we enjoy and take for granted of, quite frankly. And we do this in a way that shows honor to whom it honors due. But at the same time, we never, we never fall back and run away from addressing injustice. This is why it's good to show up outside the abortion clinic and protest pleading with people to repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness of sin. This is not being out of subjection to authorities. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Go and protest. Go and plead with people. Go and preach the gospel. Don't show up and make threats. We want to see people repent and turn to the Lord. We want to point others to Christ. And this is why I said when we started today, not to lose sight of the theme of this letter, the overall theme of Romans, Christ to all the nations. This idea that this letter is the one true God's, one true way for all the world to be right with Him. Because this passage is not just about the government and how we live in subjection to it. It is about the gospel, and it is about the gospel being able to go forward to the ends of the earth. If we think about Acts 25 again for just a minute, where Paul appeals to Caesar... This story doesn't happen inside of a vacuum. If you look back two chapters earlier at the end of Acts 23, the Lord appears to Paul. And he tells him, Paul, you're going to Rome. And when you get to Rome, you're going to testify of me the same way you did already in Jerusalem. Paul was going to Rome. He was going to Rome to preach the gospel to the Romans. And while Festus the governing authority wanted to send him back to Jerusalem. Paul appealed to Caesar to go where the Lord told him to go. And the way we carry ourselves in civil society is going to speak volumes about who we are, about how we've been changed by the gospel from being sinners who are in active rebellion against the one true and living God, taken from this mess of sin and unbelief, actively suppressing the knowledge and truth of who God is, running from Him, spitting in His face at every turn we get, only for Him to turn us into children in faith. All of which was won by Christ on the cross. When we live with this in mind, 
and we do what God tells us to do in being subject to governing authorities, it tells us, or tells the world about who our God is. This is why we heed Paul's words here in Romans 13 to be law-abiding, to be authority-honoring, to be citizens who are not looking to create disturbances and lawlessness. And this runs completely counterculture to who we want to be as people, doesn't it? If you don't believe me, take a look at cable news sometime. 24 7 hours a day, people are creating dissension, arguments, fights. We're not looking for solutions there. We're not looking for unity. It's just a way to get your money, it's just a way to keep the machine going. Brothers and sisters, if we want to see things change and we want to see godly representatives in our government, we have to stop looking for the solutions to the problem that the world gives. And we have to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. We have to stop complaining about the representatives in office that we can't stand. And we need to start praying for them like we're called to do. We have to take opportunities to call authorities who are in rebellion against God and what He has said is good to repent and to exercise their authority rightly. We want to see things change, and we want to see us as a culture and a people be more godly. It's the fastest way to see it happen. To see the change of hearts that the gospel can bring to people who are already holding those offices. And if they refuse, we get to partake and be citizens in this nation, and we get to raise up new leaders hopefully ones that will actually seek to exercise their authority in the way in which God is called. Because all authority is from God. Jesus said it. All authority has been given, and heaven on earth has been given to Him. We live our lives in subjection to Him. We live our lives taking that message of Him out to the world. It may not be the most encouraging thing to think about living in subjection to governing authorities, but church, when we do that, and we're obedient to the Lord, He uses that to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Christians were a persecuted minority in Rome. They weren't a powerful anything. They had no power. They were just some little subsect of the Jews. Most people didn't care. And then they became the people they were blaming for things. And they killed them. And they used them for entertainment. Fed the lines. And yet through that, the Lord moved and He worked. He took the gospel forward to the nations because the early church lived as Christ called them to do, under his authority, seeking to do what is right in his eyes. Let's pray. Father, we leave all of this in your hands right now. Lord, your word is truly beautiful, and it sounds weird from our human minds to say that as we ponder what it looks like to live underneath governing authorities. But God, you are a God of order. You are not a God of chaos. You are a God who desires good being done. You, you want to see peace. People live at peace with one another. So Father, remind us of that, Lord. And remind us, Lord, that uh, the way in which we live our lives to see those ends so that we would not address them the way that we typically do in our flesh, but God, we, we would pray for those representatives who are in governing offices. Lord, that we would see hearts transformed, Lord. God, let your gospel be at work 
and your people here today. And as it works in us, Father, let us go out into the world so that it would, just, uh, it would work in the lives of others because we want to see sinners come to repent and come to faith. We want to see sinners believe and be saved. So, Father, let everything we just talked about today be used to that end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.